This morning we talk about the the child that changed the world from Isaiah chapter 9 verses 1 to 7 will be our main text. It's a time of moral confusion that goes along with the political and social madness that we live in. People still love to party and have a good time, but this is only to hide the unease and the sense of pervading gloom and hopelessness which, and anxiety which fills the air. The enemy is not only outside the gates, but the enemy is also within the gates. The nation's leadership feel helpless and offer no real solution to the situation. In most cases, they actually make things worse by simply living out what the people want and listening to their opinions and whatever the polls say. The preachers keep pointing out that there are more serious problems than just the security and economic ones. The fact is that there is spiritual bankruptcy. But the vast majority are not really interested in knowing about God and submitting to his will. Well, you might be misguided if you thought that I was describing today. But this was a situation 2,700 years ago in Judah in the south. This is some 100 years before the prophet Jeremiah. It was Isaiah who lived in the limelight. He was the shining voice some 700 years before Jesus. He lived in a day of political and spiritual confusion and madness. But by this stage, the kingdom of the north had separated from the kingdom of the south. So it wasn't one big Israel already. It was Judah and the northern kingdom was known as Israel. Now gloom and doom fill the air as their own tribes of the north, together with the Syrians, they were putting pressure on Judah and knocking on their door, trying to get them to to form an an allegiance, an alliance, to put up a, a, a wider front against the Assyrians, which was the big power that was rising. The population felt helpless. And King Ahaz of the south, instead of joining the tribes of the north and Syria, decided to form an alliance with the empire, the Assyrian empire. In order to do this, he had to pay heavier taxes and basically became a vassal state. You can understand a little bit of the type of pressure that happens with our situation with China at the moment. Do you simply surrender your sovereignty and let them do what they do, or do you stand up to them? There's always a price to be paid for that, of course. As usually happens in times of adversity, people seek advice from the talking heads and the experts, from everywhere and anyone wanting you know, about what we should do. The problem was that they did not seek the help from God, the God of Israel, the God of Jacob. And they had an unhealthy fear 
to the enemy outside rather than a holy fear to the God within who promised to help and protect them if only they would submit and be obedient to So this is what Isaiah says to them in Isaiah chapter 8 verse 19. When someone tells you to consult mediums and spiritists who whisper and mutter, should not a people inquire of their God? Why, and this is one of the great questions in scripture, isn't it? Why consult the dead on behalf of the living? And now this happens in many forms. You need to understand that in in many parts of the world, in Asian and African cultures, there is a certain um, worship of the ancestors. Which is very unhealthy. And, and, but the Bible here very directly says, why consult the dead on behalf of the living? You, you would have seen the scene here in Lion King, right? Cartoon. But that's actually the, what a lot of people actually believe. You, you need to, you know, you're part of the greater universe. This is a whole Buddhist, Taoist thing that you worship your ancestors. But the Bible is very clear. Why consult the dead on behalf of the living? When people seek anything or anyone, living or dead, to solve its issues, you know that they've got bigger problems on their dark days. It is directly because of the dark days that have set upon Judah that Isaiah continues relentlessly to call them back to God, come back to God. In verse 20 he says, Consult God's instruction and testimony of warning. If anyone does not speak according to this word, they have no light of dawn. In other words, listen to God's warning. Please listen. If you don't, the darkness will not only remain, but get worse, as this is a direct punishment from God because you have chosen to walk away from his light. But in God's goodness, in his grace and patience, his grace continues to reach out to us. He continues to show love and patience toward his people in various ways. And Christmas that we celebrate, so it's a wonderful reminder, a time when God reaches out to us with with his hand of mercy by the way of the son that he loves. The wonderful gift at Christmas is a wonderful reminder that God has not left us alone despite the fact that we actually do deserve it. So what did God do? What did God do then and what is God doing now? The first thing he did was he gives a sign. God gives a sign. Isaiah chapter 7 verses 13 to 14. Then Isaiah said, Hear now, you house of David, Is it not enough that you try the patience of humans? Would you try the patience of my God also? Therefore the Lord himself will give you a sign. The virgin will conceive and give birth to a son and will call him Emmanuel. This was our topic last week. If you were listening, God with us, Emmanuel. And we revisit this passage again. In troubled times, God sends a sign to tell them 
that he is still in control. But it is an unexpected sign. In times of war and confusion, people usually stop having babies because they're worried. I've heard some comments uh, today about some couples sort of saying, yeah, the environment, it's just not a good time to have kids. We're not going to have kids because they're just going to be breathing more oxygen and just consuming them. So we we need to reduce the population of the world. So they're just deciding not to have babies. It's okay. Well, this goes against God's mandate, by the way, but when you start hearing from Christians, you've got to start to worry. What sign does God give? He doesn't do it by sending an army. God decides to give a sign by sending a baby. And some would be saying, asking, well, who needs a baby when we're all in such a mess? We haven't got time. We, we, we need to be delivered now. Send us an angel or someone who can deliver us from all our problems, please. Intervene and, and take control of this messed up world. Then we will believe in you. Then we will trust in you. But God has a different way in his wisdom. He sends a baby as a sign. How is a baby a sign? After all, babies are born every day. They should be. Unless, of course, as happens in Australia and many parts of the world, they get aborted. But when you stop and reflect conception, the birth of a child... means life. It means new life. A life emerges with new hopes, new dreams, new possibilities, a new start. So much of that when somebody announces that they're expecting, right? But nothing will ever, ever compare to this particular baby that Isaiah was speaking of. There's a story of a, of a bus full of tourists that stopped by a small village in Europe. And when they got off the, uh, the tourists got off the bus, they started to mingle around and walk and, and, and started to mingle with some of the locals. And one of the tourists asked the local, was anyone famous born in this town? To which the old wise resident responded, no, just babies. You see, unless you are royalty, no one is really born famous. I mean, babies of kings and queens are usually pretty famous already. But for the rest, the rest of us humans, common humans, the the life of influence, a reputation for good or for bad, is built over many, many years, over a lifetime of achievements and accomplishments for good or for bad. But there was one baby that had divinity and royalty and humanity all rolled into one. The virgin will conceive and give birth to a son and will call him Emmanuel. The way that 
God has designed biology. You cannot be a virgin and conceive and you cannot conceive and yet remain a virgin. The Catholics might have a problem with that, but anyway, that's, I'm not going to get into it. But So no one in that day would be able to fulfil this prophecy except a young virgin called Mary some 100 years, uh, 700 years later. So this message, the, the scholars tell us, had an application at the time, but it had a, a complete application centuries later to a future, to a virgin who would conceive and bear a very, very special son. This was the sign from God. But it was more than that because this child, by his very character and nature, would be God making his home with us. That's what the name Emmanuel means, God with us. God pitching his tent, living in our midst. So God gives a sign. The second thing he tells us is that God gives light. God gives light. There is no doubt that um, King Ahaz was in a mess of his own doing. And in, the, in Chronicles describes him as not a very good king. Not a, he was compromised. He was mired in darkness. He was spiritually blind and, and could not comprehend the meaning of the sign that God was giving him. And the rest of the population couldn't work it out either. Why? Because when the pressures are out there and you're scared, witless, you're out of your mind, you're in the midst of a darkness, you can't think clearly, you can't even hear God speaking to you, showing you the way. Even when God is trying to shine the light, people prefer to look at the darkness. It's very hard to see in the midst of darkness, isn't it? There is no thicker darkness than spiritual darkness. This is why in chapter 9, verse 2, we read those often quoted words, the people walking in darkness have seen a great light. Think of the, uh, the wise men in the east, hundreds of miles away. Suddenly a star appears and they say, wow, that's, they call it the Christmas star and, and apparently appears every 800 years, which is actually appearing around about this time, isn't it? When two stars sort of join together and, and bang, there is a, something really bright in the heavens. So that's, that's part of the significance, the symbolism there of following the star, the, the light that God was shining, even to people who had no idea what God was doing. Isaiah uttered these words to the land of Judah who was going through a very dark time. Yes, they were occupied at the time of Jesus appeared. They were occupied again by a foreign nation. It seems to be the, uh, what the land of Israel was known for. Everybody was taking their turn in, in occupying Israel. 
and, and any reading of history will tell you that empires come and go. The Assyrians, the Babylonians, the Greeks, the Romans, the Spanish, the French. I'm sure I'm forgetting somebody, but the American Empire will also have its day. At the time of Jesus, the most powerful empire, and probably the most powerful empire that the world had ever known, for 500 years, the Roman Empire occupied everything and everyone. Everybody had to pay their taxes, everybody had to give homage to Rome and even by the time that the early church was founded they had to even recognise and say their prayers to Caesar who considered himself divine. And the people with little hope, again, whatever little hope they had, they felt helpless again. And more than that, because since the last prophet Malachi, there was a 400-year silence. There was no word from heaven. 400 years is a long time. There were no prophets. There was no light. And then John tells us in John 1, 9, the Gospel of John, chapter 1, verse 9, the true light that gives light to everyone is coming into the world. God is bringing the light into the darkness. And I think that's part of the reason why when people like to put lights outside their houses and decorate their homes, I think it's a great idea. For us as Christians, I think it is a symbolism of the light that God shines in our world. Obviously, Unfortunately, as these things tend to happen, there is a superstition that is attached to it along the way. We were staying in a, uh, with my daughter, we were staying in this Airbnb place, 300 kilometres above the Arctic Circle in the middle of winter, um, a few years ago, about three years ago now. And we just wanted to see the, the Northern Lights and we managed to see it for that. So I said to the, to the locals, I said, thank you for taking us out, but are we able to see it from the house, not just going in, the, in the, the middle of a frozen lake at minus 27 below zero, to see these lights? So could we see it? But the only way you could see it was if you switched off the lights, the Christmas lights, because in, in Scandinavia there are lights everywhere, everywhere, Christmas lights. And they said, no, we, can't, we, we don't want to switch off the light because that... Um, we're not allowed to. That it's, it's a superstitious belief that if you switch off a light, even for a moment, that um, you know, you're not going to get God's blessing. You see, this is what I mean. Like There is a superstition that crept in over the years. But for you, Paul, we'll make an exception, they said, so they did switch it off. It's interesting that when the shopping centres and the and different departments and schools 
They're talking about taking down Christmas trees and Christmas lights and carols. There is, we, we, we sense the loss because it, it would, it's part of what makes it's a tradition. It's part of something that we want to hold on to. We want to keep the form. The problem is that the substance has been already emptied out and all we're left with is, is an empty symbol. And I'm for Christmas trees and Christmas lights and Christmas carols in the shopping centres. But once you remove the substance, all you have is some type of empty symbolism, unfortunately. But we'll, I'll cling on to whatever we can get, right? I'll cling on to whatever, whatever you know, I can hold on to because at least it, it, it's a reminder of what it supposed to be. And we can only hope and pray that as people reflect on these things that he points them to a, a greater light, to something bigger, something more significant than you can simply buy at the shops. That even as you hear the carols being sung, that you Yes, this is, this is the one who was sent into the world. It's not just about a, a little town in Bethlehem, but it's about God coming into our midst to shine his light. And the words of God spoken through the prophets, spoken from the pulpits, through the preachers, and through their airwaves, it's the same message, isn't it? It has to be. If only people would hear if only people would hear. And number three, God gives his son. God gives his son. What kind of child is this? And Isaiah describes to us the expectations on this child when he says, For to us a child is born, to us a son is given. And the government will be on his shoulders. As I said before, there are some expectations on royal babies, especially if they are in line, in a short line for, for the throne, for kings or queens. But no, no baby ever carried this much expectation upon its tiny shoulders. 33 years later, no amount of suffering and shame would deter from his sacrifice for our sins on Calvary. Jesus passed every possible test of life and even the ultimate test of death put before him and he conquered it all. Conquered it all. So Isaiah proceeds to tell us of the wonderful characteristics of this child. In other words, what is he going to be like? Well, first of all, he is wise. He is called a wonderful counsellor, which literally means a wonder of a counsellor. He doesn't need advisors or cabinets or uh, the usual government thing saying, yes, we've appointed a committee who will bring a recommendation. No, he doesn't need any of that. 
This child is a wonder when it comes to wisdom and knowledge. When he was 12, you know what happened? He goes into the temple and everybody's confounded. All the teachers of the temple, they, he, he, the parents even forgot where he was because he was stuck there doing his father's business. And at the age of 30, when he starts his ministry, what did the people say? They were amazed at his authority because no one spoke like that. Just look around us. Wisdom is in short supply. Despite the increase in ideas and the increase in PhDs, everybody's doing a PhD or a doctorate on something or whatever, but it's, it's only really to test the boundaries rather than concentrate on what is essential and important. The increase in ideas and theories, few of these have actually been tested, but well, let's just try and release them and see what happens. Because we're testing, we're going beyond the boundaries that the Bible himself has given us. And the further away we move from the source of wisdom, the more and more confused we will become. Since the Garden of Eden, we knew what a male and a female was. But now you have a choice. There's 162 different genders now that you can choose. Tell me that's not confusion. But when you put your faith in Jesus, we are tapping into the wonderful counsellor. He is the only one who can ultimately bring light and clarity in your life and in mine. And when he shines his light in your darkness, then you will start to see more clearly. Our lives will put back on track. And the way that society is put back on track is one life at a time. He's a wonderful counsellor. Secondly, he's strong. He's called mighty God. Right throughout the Bible we read again and again of God's omnipotence, don't we? When Jesus came, his power was displayed in so many different ways. We saw his miracles that control nature and the storm. He rebuked it and the sea was quiet. He kicked the demons out of the people, the exorcisms. He performed healings and resurrected the dead like Lazarus, called him, called him out from the tomb. And when he died and rose again on the third day, what a powerful display of his power over life and death. Yet, yet, something that we don't often mention or highlight is the way that his power was displayed in the things he didn't do. What am I talking about here? I'm talking about his self-control was simply amazing. When taunted again and again, even at his temptation, he was taunted by the devil to do this and this and this and this and he, he wouldn't do it. He restrained himself. Even when encouraged by two of his disciples, the sons of thunder, let's recall the occasion when the people of the village of Samaria uh, up in the north, we were talking just about the northern kingdom, Samaria was his capital. These people, the Samaritans, they, they were not responsive to the message of Jesus. They didn't want to hear about it. 
And it was these disciples, James and John, who wanted, what did they do? Oh, Jesus, now let's just spend a bit more time. I think these people are good. I think we're getting somewhere. No! The moment they rejected him, they just said, look, let's rain, call the thunder from heaven on them. Let's just destroy the lot of them. Have you ever felt like that? Maybe you and I can relate to their reaction at times. It, it would appear, I think, that James and John weren't the only sons of thunder. When you see the injustice, when you see the craziness of our times and the stuff that people get away with and the way that people reject God, he's sort of saying, God, just rain down, just bring it on, get it over and done with. But we are not Jesus, are we? As the song says, hands, hands that flung stars into space, to cruel nails surrendered. And meanwhile, legions of angels in heaven waited with bated breath. When you believe in Jesus, you are trusting the mighty God in the things that he does, in the things that he withholds. If he is powerful enough to create the universe, he's certainly powerful enough to save you and me and whatever issues and burdens that we carry, he's offering to carry it for you on his mighty shoulders. From his little tiny shoulders, he is the mighty God. He's no longer a baby. Then he tells us, as I told us, he is relational. He is called Everlasting Father. Everlasting Father. Some of us have had, have had the privilege of having our earthly fathers with us for many years. Some of our fathers have gone to war and never returned. Some, through circumstances of marriage and others, have sadly never had a relationship with their father. And, and this is why the, the, this, this name is important as it carries with it the, the very strong relational aspect of our God. It's what David could say, even though my mother and father abandoned me, you will never will, he said. And this is why this name is important as it carries this relational <clears throat> aspect of our God. It, it is one thing to have a a powerful saviour. But what if you cannot relate to this saviour? It's, it's okay. It's wonderful for somebody to come and rescue you in your moment, in your worst moment, like you're, you're lost at sea and suddenly there's a lifesaver and they go out there and, and rescue you and, and, and bring you, you know, do a bit of resource and you come back to life and you're saying, fantastic. But I'm pretty sure that this, this lifesaver, whose job it is to work on the beaches and things like this, they're not wanting really to continue to have this wonderful relationship with you for, from that moment on. He says, mate, I've got other lives to say, I have got time to establish this relationship with you now, okay? I'm, I'm, I thank you and all that, but we've got to move on. What am I getting at? God didn't just come to save us. He came to be with us. He came to relate to us, to walk with us each and every day. 
Because our God who saves but doesn't want to have anything to do with us is, you know, it's not enough, is it? And the reason we want to get to heaven, the reason we want to be with him is because this is the Father who cares each and every day. Father, we can come to. He's relational. Who loves us continually. He not only saves, but he's continually caring for us, providing for us. This is why the old hymn says it so well. I need thee every hour. Right? Not just at the moment of salvation, but I need thee every hour. And right throughout the scriptures, you, have, you would have noticed how often the name Father appears. And when Jesus came, he said, I and the Father are one. And no one comes to the Father but by him. He's loving, tender, paternal, faithful, guardian, protector, provider. And when you have a relationship with Christ, we are assured of his eternal, eternal love, everlasting love for us that never ends, but continues, continues into heaven. And lastly, he is peace. He is called the Prince of Peace. He is the very embodiment of peace. Therefore, he rules over his people as such, as the Prince of Peace. He once told his disciples in John fourteen twenty seven, Peace I leave with you, my peace I give you. I do not give to you as the world gives. The peace of God is different to out of the world. And, and, and I think this is where the term peace, there is confusion in that. You can march on the streets for peace. You can sing all the songs for peace that you want. Peace, brother. You can, you can sign all the peace treaties in the world, but without peace with God, it'll simply at most be symbolic and meaningless. And, and we know how quickly these treaties can be broken. The result of his coming into our hearts is perfect peace. And as hard as it is for you to comprehend this Christmas, perhaps with all the stuff that is going on, there are many Christians, even at this very moment, languishing in prisons in many parts of our world, despite the suffering, despite the isolation, they know a peace that only God can can bring. And we need to remember them. Despite the terrible conditions, they know more peace than those on the streets who flaunt their so-called freedom. But the Apostle Paul reminds us in Romans 5.1, Therefore, since we have been justified through faith, we have peace with God. Through whom? Through our Lord Jesus Christ. That's great, isn't it? And when you put your trust in Jesus you have the Prince of Peace as your ruler. If he's able to calm the storm in the sea, he's more than capable of bringing calm to the storms in our lives. He's the only one who can give you inner, deep peace. There's one thing to acknowledge his coming into our world at this time of year, but it's another thing to live each day 
of every day of the year in the light of Christmas of the fact that God is with us in Jesus Christ. And all of this celebration, all of it will be wasted unless your heart and mind has been changed to live our lives for him according to his wisdom, according to how he wants us to live. My prayer and our prayer should be that we will all know and live the rest of our days with a transformed heart for his glory and honour until the day he calls us home and then for the rest of eternity awaits. What a year it has been, right? Next Sunday we will look back a little bit more and give us an opportunity to give thanks to God that he has been with us. But before next Sunday we still have Christmas Day on Friday. Please join us and may God's blessing be with us. Amen.